Good morning and welcome to Treasures of Faith. As you all know, this is a local production of Divine Mercy Radio, and we are on a WDMC radio pilgrimage with Father Ben Berenti. He is joining me today. And for each Tuesday during Lent, we're going to continue our journey. I am your host, Bill Gent, and I want to welcome each and every one of you on our Lenten pilgrimage. Father Ben, welcome back. Thanks for being here. It's good to be here and continuing on uh, the journey amidst all of the challenges that we are you know, facing as, uh, as a people and as a world. And, and uh, so it's great to be able to have a place where we could come and maybe step aside from the madness and yes. and just just be together uh, in community and traveling although again uh, with all the restrictions that are being placed here's another here's the beauty of a radio pilgrimage yes. no one is placing any restrictions on our listeners you can go you can travel but you don't have to be exposed to to anything so and just be reassured that father ben and i and our radio engineer are about 3 or 4 feet away from each other just to kind of calm anyone's Uh, concerns about what's going on in the studio. Well, anyway, Father Ben, this has been such a delight, this Lenten pilgrimage. And uh, I know last time, our first stop on this Lenten journey was going up to Jerusalem. Yeah, we talked last time about, uh, you know, the whole movement and the beginning of this passionate journey of Christ is this, the movement to Jerusalem. And amongst a number of the points that we made was uh, every time in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, Psalms, other places, prophetic uh, scriptures, um, and then in references in the New Testament, it's always this idea of going up to Jerusalem, and not so much only for geographical uh, purposes, but the whole notion of this is a climb, this is an ascent, it's it's a it's a rigorous movement, and when uh, sort of Jerusalem then becomes kind of that first plateau. Uh, where a lot of things are happening, but then we'll see the climb continues, literally the climb to Calvary, um, and then what happens uh, after that. So Jesus, we talked about last time, set his face, so he makes this decision that this is his destiny, this is where he wants to go, needs to go. Um, Certainly the Gospels tell us this is not an easy decision. He struggles with this over and over again, and, and I think we always have to remind ourselves the struggle is real. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sharing last night in a Bible study on the passion uh, narratives of Mark at uh, my parish that, you know, we have a tendency sometimes to, uh, first of all, you allied all of these scripture readings together, and so it's sort of one story of the passion, and it's not one story, it's four mm-hmm. narratives. And the other thing that we sometimes tend to do is um, we want to fall into that heretical <laughs> thing that people do, and well, he was divine, and so this, this wasn't really real. No, this is real. He's just kind of floated yes, through the floating, whole Yes, he's floating, or he makes this look really good, <laughs> yeah. like he's really engaged in suffering, but not. And the gospel writers are very, very clear in everything they, they try to communicate in their own way in each of the passion narratives. This is real, mm. and, and the struggle is real, mm. and the decision-making is real. Uh, because as I shared with our folks last night, if that's not the case, then that doesn't do much good for us. Mm. Um, we can't be inspired by it. We can't be encouraged by it. We can't be motivated because we're always going to end up in the place, well, he was the son of God, so of course he could get through this. So h- how do I get through this? And remember, the Lord is always about helping us, being with us, guiding us. Mm. And so if, if, if his passion is going to be instructive for us, then we have to realize that his, his up to Jerusalem 
uh, is real and what is going to take place in the upper room. These, these are real things. And, and he, as he did throughout all his ministry, is connecting with people. And so he's going to connect with us. And Father Ben, last week you alluded to Luke's gospel where we find him descending Mount Tabor where the transfiguration took place. He's set his face toward Jerusalem. So we think in terms of Jesus is on a mission, and yet all along the way in Luke's gospel, he still continues to minister to those that he encounters. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. You know, we would always think about, you know, I'm on a mission. Look, never mind. I don't have time for you. I got to get to Jerusalem and die for your sins, you know. And yet we see Jesus there encountering everyone and just the peacefulness of the Lord as he encounters people on his way to this very tragic event from our perspective is really something to behold. It gives us, I think, a lot of comfort. It does. And I mean, I think that image you present there is a good one in the sense that, you know, when we when, when we kind of use that expression, whatever it happens to be, you know, I'm looking for a particular item in a store or something more important than that, and we say, I'm on a mission. <laughs> you have this sense that literally when we say we're on a mission, you're tunnel visioned, you know, we're, we're focused here. I got to get to this place and I have to get from point A to point B. We, we lose peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. And really what you're mm-hmm. describing is on this pilgrimage here, Jesus is showing, yes, I've made a decision. I have set my face, but Jesus in a sense hasn't lost peripheral vision. He is mm-hmm. still looking to the side to see who he's going to meet along the way, who he can share life with, who he can minister to. Um, he doesn't, uh, in a sense, the, of course, the, the weight of what is about to happen continues to grow in his life and in that of the disciples. And yet at the same time, he doesn't say, well, let's just let's just fold up the tent and see what happens. No, we're going to continue mm. to the end mm. doing what we've been doing all along. Mm. And I think that's also and there, there's it's not only just a decision he makes, but I think there's a truth in that and it's it's difficult we know this in our own life but when we're in the midst of our own difficulties or challenges and we become naturally uh, selfish uh, because i have a lot to go going on right now mm-hmm. there is some wisdom that jesus shows us that the way to make it through even our own passion mm-hmm. carrying our own cross is to somehow not be so self-centered self-consumed but i that that burden becomes less as I actually turn my attention to others. Mm. You know, so mm-hmm. there's that sense that mm. we think that, okay, well, and sometimes we do. I mean, sometimes things are so difficult for us, we really sort of pull in and set the boundaries and we're really concentrating on what's happening to us. But, but that can be suffocating mm. even in the midst of our, our pain. And yet when we're in pain to sometimes walk with others who are yeah. or to do an act of kindness, somehow this this gives us a freedom, a peace, and a serenity. So I, I, as you're mentioning, I think I see, we see the Lord doing that as well mm. as, okay, this is where we're going. I've made this determination, but I'm not going to stop doing what I've been doing mm-hmm. all along. It's mm-hmm. actually part of yeah. the whole journey. And, and again, that image fits well with what we've been trying to say about pilgrimage. You know, when you are the tourist rather than the pilgrim, you just want to get from point A to point B to point yep. C because, hey, this is what the itinerary said. Mm-hmm. I think probably when you've been on pilgrimages mm-hmm. or I've been on tour groups of different kinds before, too, there are certain people in the group who just say, but look here on the itinerary. It says we're supposed to be here yeah. and we're supposed to be there at three o'clock and it's 430 <laughs> now. And 
and and when you do that as a tourist, you miss yeah. all of the things that are going on around you mm. and other opportunities. And so mm. I think similar in our own being a pilgrim people is that even though we're moving in a certain direction or certain things are happening in our life right now that are moving us in a certain way, issues we have to deal with, family issues, relationships, uh, crises of faith, um, caring for, for certain people. In other words, my life is moving now more in this direction because of what's happening. I still have to look around and, and see what else is happening. Um, and, and certainly the Lord is showing that on his way up, and, up and the to challenge Jerusalem. is, Father, for many of us, and you know, I was thinking about we as men, you know, we're usually very mission-oriented. We don't want to be confused with something else that's going on that we have to give attention to because I've got to get here and do this or that, and, and you uh, have uh, illustrated that. But, you know, at the same time, I think that in my experience, you mentioned the pilgrimage. When I was in Jerusalem, and I think I talked about this last week, I'm in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and we got like a two- or three-hour wait to get through the lines. The beauty of it was to live in the present and have an opportunity to have conversations with some of the other pilgrims that really did, uh, I think, in a, in a very real way, enrich the experience. Because it is ultimately about encounter, not only with Jesus, but with other believers and other people. Right. So it's, I guess it all kind of works together. The problem is, Father, <laughs> we have our own goals and our own way of seeing how to accomplish those goals. We aren't always open to the distractions and the opportunities that the Lord affords us. Right, and, I, and that's also part of the whole notion of, of pilgrimage. Um, both literally and sort of metaphorically as we're looking at it. So literally in terms of pilgrimage, you know, yeah, you, you go on a pilgrimage, you have a certain kind of program and itinerary, and this is what you're going to see and do, and you do things at certain kind of times a day. And, you know, in the very fine, you know, fine, tiny print at the bottom of these pages is, you know, entire itinerary subject subject to change. Well, you know, you could put that on our life itinerary as well. <laughs> you know, put it on our daily itinerary. So this is subject to change because we don't know what we're going to be. Uh, encountering. So, you know, you have a certain kind of a, a plan, but when you give yourself over to pilgrimage, to be a pilgrim, you are literally putting yourself into others' hands. Mm-hmm. And therefore, mm-hmm. I, I, there's an expectation that I'm going to be open to other people, other situations. This is part of the the uh, experience. So yeah, we have our own goals, you know, on a pilgrimage, on a tour of some kind, there are certain kind of things I'm more excited about seeing than others. But you know what? Today, I got to do what everybody else is doing. Why? Because we're in this together. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to some and yeah. hopefully maybe try to be less resistant about what could possibly happen mm-hmm. today, because this is the last thing I really want to, uh, you know, want to see today. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was traveling with uh, my religious community during our General Assembly last September in Poland, it was very much a working <laughs> three weeks of activity. But we had two days of traveling in between uh, locations where we did some touring. And, you know, in a few of the stops we were making, I had pretty much had my fill of I don't want to see one more place like this, mm-hmm. or I don't want to see one more souvenir or one more picture <laughs> of this individual, you know, as I'm going along the way. I think I've about seen it all, and it's all starting to sound the same. Mm-hmm. And yet in those moments, it's like, okay, that that's a truth, and it was a struggle with me. But then I also had to say, but part of this whole experience is not about that person or that location or 
you know, this is where they were baptized, and here's where they got communion, and here's where... It's not about the location. It's about the experience of Mm. being here with other people. Mm. The privilege that I had of traveling with other members of my religious congregation, uh, working all over the world and being able to learn about them. So in the process of seeing and doing things, the, the, the richness, that's a beautiful thing you used, the term, it's enriching, is all of the other mm. stuff that goes on. So even yeah. in our own daily pilgrimage, uh, things that all of you and I and our listeners are dealing with just in our lives today, on this particular day, um, we've got to sort of broaden our vision and see what else is happening, because that's all part of what the Lord wants us to experience. So, you know, like your story about the Holy Sepulchre or some of these other sites you visited, it's like, okay, I can check the box. I went to so-and-so's birthplace, and I saw the font where they were baptized. But what I'm really going to remember is being together with other members of my religious congregation, sometimes just looking at the devotion on the people who were at this same site as me, whose devotion is far beyond what I'm experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact, you know, every once in a while it just caught me, wow, I am in, I am standing in the footsteps of a present day saint. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about I'm standing in the footsteps of someone who lived five, seven centuries ago. This is somebody uh, who was canonized just recently Mm -hmm. and they were part of my own life story. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so you grasp these other things, uh, again, but at the same time, honestly, not denying the fact that I was ready to move on and (laughs) have some other experiences or or see some other, other kinds of things. So that's all, all part of our, our, uh, movement. And so Jesus arrives into Jerusalem and then the next stop, uh, on our way today is, uh, invites us into the search for the upper room. Now, did he have a reservation, Father, given the fact that it's Passover and there'll be lots of people, you know, um, really uh, entering Jerusalem? So I'm sure he got on Travelocity or something, right, and got his reservation right, for the upper ca- room? Kayak yeah. to, to look at all, you could make all the comparisons <laughs> no, you No, Travago, that's yeah. the one. Well, well, yeah. I, think, I think what happens here is very reminiscent of at least a couple of the infancy narratives. Uh, you know, Jesus' mother and father decide to go to the home place during the census. Okay, worst time to go. Uh, everything is filled up. There is no room at the inn. So you arrive in Jerusalem during high holy days and wonder, is there going to be any place? But a very um, profound and, and uh, curious set of stories of the uh, evangelists, a lot of curiosities around the search for this. Mm-hmm. So it turns out, jumping ahead of ourselves, there is a place, mm. but there is still a search for this place, but it mm. takes on unique uh, characteristics. Uh, one thing we have to keep reminding ourselves of, and this is true of, you know, as you know, well know, all of the gospel texts, but when you get to the passion narratives, all of this stuff happening around sort of the climax of Jesus's life and ministry, uh, some have some evangelists have more details than others, but no detail is <laughs> is just something that oh thrown in uh, mm-hmm. or something in passing. Each detail has uh, a certain kind of um, importance to it, mm-hmm. and again, not importance about the place, the locale, the the path that was taken, but it's what does this mean about Jesus, and therefore what does it mean about us as as disciples? So we're going to see a lot of that as we as we begin to explore today this place um, that we often refer to as the upper room. So it is the time of the Passover, and of course Jesus is anticipating this Passover meal. I, I, again, I go back to Luke's gospel because 
I remember in that passage, I think it's Luke Tummer, chapter 22, he says, I have so looked forward to uh, to sharing this Passover with you. It's just beautiful the way Luke uh, really kind of describes that, that Jesus was looking forward to this very intimate experience with his disciples. Right, and uh, uh, Luke, uh, and we'll see in a few moments, Luke gives uh, perhaps one of the more detailed um, descriptions, really a prophetic description of the whole uh, search for the upper room and, and Jesus' conversation there, you find a little bit of different nuances in uh, Mark and, and Matthew. And, of course, John, as we'll see, doesn't speak at all uh, about a search for a room, and there's some interesting uh, things things to look at there. But I think just as a, as a kind of a way uh, of, of bridging uh, into maybe looking at a few of these Scripture passages and seeing what, what's revealed there uh, for us, is that the one thing that is clear, and you, you kind of alluded to this already, that the, this place, whether the search for it and once they find it, as well as John who just sort of puts them in this place, it's a place that represents for Jesus and for the disciples, and I think also we'll see when we make our own applications, what does this mean for our pilgrim journey, um, this is a place that represents belonging. Mm. It's a place of intimacy. It is certainly meant to be a place of safety, and it is a place of safety both before Calvary, and for some of the evangelists, it's a place of safety after Calvary. Cataclysmic events are about to happen in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Even though there were hints and guesses about these things, things are really coming to move very, very quickly now and not in a very good direction. And so the upper room will become a place that helps Jesus and his disciples in community, in communion, prepare for what's ahead. Mm-hmm. And that's what a little bit later on in the program we'll be exploring. You know, what does this mean for us? So I think overall, each of the evangelists are trying to say in their own way to carve out a picture. And the picture of the upper room begins with the search that this, this is a place that's needed uh, for, you know, we just had this past Sunday, there was a place where three of the apostles get to have a special experience, a special place, and they Mm -hmm. wanted to set up shop there. Mm -hmm. That's not the place to set up shop. The place to set up shop to prepare for the passion, the suffering and death of Christ is in this upper room. It Mm -hmm. becomes the place Mm -hmm. where there is going to be transformation, where there's going to be um, a new vision. There's going to be a new way of being together and literally being in communion with the Lord, in a sense, even more profoundly than there was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm. Uh, the upper room becomes another place of of a transfiguration, so much so we will see eventually, and next week's stop as we gather around the Paschal table, is um, the glory of the Lord, the transfiguration of the Lord, bread and wine are going to be transfigured into body and blood. This is even more uh, profound than mm-hmm. uh, Moses, Elijah, and some white garments and a shining face. Mm-hmm. So, so this, is a, this is a place that reminds us, too, we'll see, that in our faith journey, in our pilgrimage, you and I need these kinds of places, yep. and we'll explore a little bit later on, maybe in the second half of the program, where do we find those places? Can we find those places? Is church? Mm-hmm. We expect church yeah. to be this kind of place, but mm-hmm. is it really uh, for people? But, um, you know, you start off with Luke, so maybe let's take uh, take a quick look 
um, at Luke 22, just to get a little flavor of what the evangelists are, are doing um, in this search. And, and I want to emphasize that before we arrive, uh, our stop is is the searching, looking around. And, and again, we probably have this experience when we're touring, even if you have a really great tour guide, is sometimes you get into a position where, okay, now where is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we going to get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I found in my own um, sightseeing, if you will, uh, sometimes the circuitous route yeah. <laughs> is the more interesting mm-hmm. uh, route mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. To, to get someplace. So, so the search for the upper room is is really an important uh, aspect. So, uh, Luke begins that conversation, that narrative in uh, chapter twenty-two, verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Very interesting uh, choice of of words. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us that we may eat it. And they asked him, where do you want us to make preparations for it? Listen, he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Make preparations for us there. So they went and they found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. So you've got a lot of elements there, uh, beautiful elements working um, in Luke, this desire to be together. Now, this is our time now to come really together. We have been focusing on right up until the end, sort of to this moment, but in a sense, Jesus's Uh, external ministry is coming to an end Mm -hmm. in the sense of I'm not he's not going out to cure lepers and not going out to preach there's no more uh, delivering of teachings there's no more sermons on the mount or on the plain this is a time now where he's gathering his most intimate uh, followers into a place of intense relationship in a in a sense just for them so the ministry, in a way, it will have external implications, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. But in a way, the ministry is now turning into an incredibly formative internal mm-hmm. uh, ministry, an intense period of time where this this family has to gather together to face mm-hmm. what they're about to face. And so it's a different element of Jesus's ministry that is not so much now going out, wandering the countryside, picking people up on the side of the road, responding to scribes and Pharisees in terms of teaching and points of the law. This is very much now a time when the Lord desires to eat the Paschal feast at a time when the lamb has to be slain, must be slain. So much of his ministry was mingling with the crowds, Father, and so now the disciples, as they're in Jerusalem, it would have been very easy with the size of the crowds to kind of get lost in the group, so to speak. And then Jesus recognized, and, and you just alluded to this, they need to be together in a more intimate situation in order to really prepare them so that they will know that they are just very special to me. You know, like he says, I've desired so much to be with you and to eat this Passover. They are special to him, and we'll see that played out a little bit more as we uh, talk further today, but also in our stop next week as we actually make a stop at the table of the Paschal Sacrifice. Um, So not only are they special to him, but you make another point there is with all that's going on at the time of Passover— 
in the center of Passover High Holy Days, there are a lot of distractions. Mm -hmm. The disciples have already made numerous attempts to distract Jesus from passion along the way. You know, oh, Lord, that no, that no way that's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. um, oh, let's uh, let's talk about who's the greatest. Uh, you know, all these distracting conversations that end up coming at a time when he's trying to give them some preparation. So literally, there's a lot of distraction happening. And this is the time when he's trying to focus them on the very the the truth of the cross. The cross is going to not is no longer going to be something abstract. Mm -hmm. This is going to be real. And so the disciples would have had a lot of different ways to be in the crowd, uh, go to the temple to do things. In other words, uh, I don't know, just go out and spend your time shopping for the Passover feast. In other words, you could do all kinds of things to distract you from what you need most to be paying attention to. And so the way the Lord protects them from that is saying, no, we're going to come together and our, our, our sight, our sound has to be incredibly focused now. Mm. And again, this is often what we do uh, when we're in the middle of difficult things. Some, yes, we need respite, we need a break, but also we can consume ourselves with so many distractions mm -hmm. that we're not paying attention to like what's really important right in front of us. So the upper room um, is also functioning that way. It's, it's a point of focus, uh, like our Lenten journey. You need to focus to be more intense about where we're going, and, you know, and that's, what, that's what we're trying to do as well. So it's not really the location that is the most important. And certainly for all of our listeners, we're all in different parishes, maybe even different dioceses, and yet we can have the same experience, though we're not all in the same exact location. Right. You know, in, in the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, speak about uh, the search for the upper room, um, one of the things that it reveals is it's really not so much about the location. It's a, it's a curious way to find it. Uh, the man, you know, carrying the jar of water. Very. I, I would have asked a few yes. more questions, I think. Very uh, unusual because— With in, thousands of people exactly. in Jerusalem, I'm yeah. going to find one guy? There would have been a lot of people carrying <laughs> water, but the interesting point is most of them, they would rarely, if ever, have been a man carrying any water. Right. It would have been a woman who was carrying water. Right. So this guy would have stuck out yeah. like a sore yeah. thumb in the middle of all the stuff that's, <laughs> that's going on. So we have these different kind of curiosities, but I think what we see the authors trying to describe is not so— so much a location, but the qualities of the kind of space, mm. the kind of room, and how they come across this room, this is what's important. It is a large, spacious room. Uh, and so we're going so what what's the meaning of that? We'll be exploring that a little bit later on. But also one of the things that each of these three uh, synoptic evangelists want to make clear, it is a room that is curiously found, but it is ready and waiting to receive Jesus and all that was about to come. So it says a lot about this. It's not, was it this place or that place? What kind of room, what kind of space really is the better way to say it is necessary to face Calvary, mm. to face passion, to give body and blood for the sake of others. You just can't do this anywhere, anyhow. It has to be an accommodating space. But it's also, you know, speaking to what is our readiness? You know, is this, this room of our own lives during this Lenten season, how ready and waiting are we to receive Jesus and all that's about to come? So uh, all three of these um, 
evangelists reveal that Jesus had a specific place in mind, but not because, um, whatever, it's four-star or five-star right. or, right. uh, or it's or, off the beaten yeah. path. or He has a specific place in mind, but it's because of what kind of place can provide for what he and the apostles need. That's, I think, the key to where it, we are. It also assumes that outside of the circle of the apostles, there were others that were close enough to him that when they heard the words, I need to have a place, that person was available to actually prepare the place. Exactly. That, that you know, you have these uh, preparations, these expectations, but someone has to be ready to, to make the space available. Literally, uh, in these three synoptic Gospels, the disciples need to find someone who will lead them to the kind of place mm. where where all of this can come together mm. and where there can be intimacy and belonging and safety to, to prepare for. And isn't that the story of our own faith journey? Mm. You and I and our listeners, we need people to lead us yeah. to the kind of space, and we need to be the men and women carrying jars of water that that people will recognize as, ah, this is a person who can also maybe invite me into a space. It would be important for the apostles to think, if they were thinking about this is kind of a closed club and it's just us, but they're recognizing there are others out there who are not in the same club, but they also are related to Jesus in a very special way. Absolutely, because this upper room, as we'll see in the next half of the show, needs to be a place of communion. Well, stay with us as we continue our, our radio pilgrimage this Lent with Father Ben Brinti. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, Melbourne, Vero Beach. Welcome back to Treasures of Faith. I hope you are joining us and really, uh, and I am completely enjoying our Lenten pilgrimage with Father Ben Berenti. By the way, Father Ben is the pastor of Immaculate Conception in Melbourne Beach, and we are in the midst of this pilgrimage, this journey together uh, with Jesus. And last week we found ourselves on the way to Jerusalem. We go up to Jerusalem. And uh, today now we are searching for that upper room. And Father, you were sharing with us from Luke's Gospel, which is the most detailed explanation. But the other evangelists also give us some interesting information uh, about uh, that search for the upper room. Right. And, um, you know, in Matthew's Gospel, he just simply speaks about a certain man. Mm-hmm. So a little less um, detailed, a little less intriguing uh, maybe, but but again, it still points to this sense that the evangelist Jesus has a specific kind of a place in mind. So it's a certain man, um, and the language is, you know, the master desires to eat the Paschal feast in your house. I I love the not the house, this place, that mm-hmm. place, that room, but mm-hmm. but Matthew gives that sense of the Lord desires to share this important moment in your house. And I think as as I was rereading that again yesterday, uh, that that says a lot to me spiritually and mm-hmm. and, and everything else about you know the, the, the Lord desires to come under your roof, mm-hmm. uh, come to your house to share mm-hmm. this intimate uh, moment. And and Mark somewhat mimics uh, Luke uh, with a little bit less detail, but he again describes the room as large, uh, spacious. In other words, there's got to be enough room for everybody, mm-hmm. whoever the everybody is. And I think mm-hmm. one of the challenges, too, for us um, 
Yeah, you know, no criticism of Leonardo da Vinci's famous Last Supper, but there had to be a lot more people than that. Yeah. And they weren't posing for a selfie in, in, <laughs> in this sort of rectangular uh, sort of uh, shape. So that, that very much and many, many portraits of the Last Supper color our whole sense of who was there, what was going on there. So I'll just simply leave it at, the, the, you know, the authors are really clear that the space has to be big enough for everybody, whoever the everybody mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Happened, uh, happened to be. Uh, and, and, you know, you have been to these places yourself, uh, been to the upper room, been to places like this in, in the Holy Land, and, you know, just simply the kinds of structures that would have existed during Jesus's time, uh, it's clearly an upper room. So there's some significance to that as well. And I think one of the things that some people have said as they reflected and tried to, you know, sort of tease out the uh, the implications of these very short descriptions is, you know, obviously as an upper room, it may have had windows, uh, most likely would have had a skylight or an opening. Um, in a sense, what that tells me, and what I like to imagine is it's also a space that there was a view sort of everywhere. From an upper room, you get a better view. Mm. You get a larger, more expansive view. And what Jesus is about to enter into um, needs an expansive view. You've got to be able to see sort of all the angles, and this will play out in the narratives as they go forward. What is God intending here? What's going to be happening? What are the different elements of it? So this upper room, in a sense, literally gives Jesus a view towards all the stops that are still coming. This mm. is an interesting mm. uh, perspective that uh, Mark and, and, uh, and Luke uh, provide us. But again, it's, it's the qualities, the implications of that space. Uh, and I think that's what perhaps we'd like to explore a little bit now is, you know, really, what does all this now say about our own journey, our own pilgrimage, our own uh, search for an upper room? Is there a place that has these kind of qualities, not only where we can celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion, but really, as the Second Vatican Council has spoken about the Church, and this was a very favorite theme of uh, Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict XVI, that the Church is a place of communion, Mm -hmm. not just a place to Mm -hmm. share Holy Communion of the Body and Blood of Christ, but it's it's more encompassing than that. Um, So the upper room really is going to become for these Jesus and his disciples— a place of communion. Uh, and that's, a, as you well know, and maybe you can help our listeners, that's a very special word in the Greek of, uh, of the New Testament, and that's koinonia. Yes, yeah. And also, Father, the whole idea that it was ready and it was waiting. And I think in terms of when our, our <clears throat> parishioners, when they darken the doors of our parish church, you know, and this is the beautiful thing about the Catholic Church, it's typically open. You know, it's it's ready. It's waiting for you. People just show up at church and it's you know, and I know I know in some places, maybe in inner cities now they have to lock doors, unfortunately. But that's not been true historically for Catholic churches. Always open, always ready to greet, uh, always waiting for you to come and spend some time and commune with the Lord. And I think for those who open the door on early Sunday morning for those who do make preparations. And we'll probably get into more of that uh, maybe next week. But the beauty of that ought not to be missed. Right. And and again, there are, you know, increasingly in different places and times, 
there are practical reasons churches are closed and but the interesting thing to to uh, i guess uh, affirm what you were saying is that every so often you'll find someone who says oh well, I went, I wanted to make a visit to the church, but it was locked at four o'clock. Well, where I come from in New Jersey, the church is always <laughs> open. And so, you, you know, you, so again, there are, there are practical reasons. And, and sometimes uh, we get caught in, you know, well, the only reason the church closes at four o'clock is because that's when the maintenance person leaves and mm-hmm. they close the church. Not that somebody <laughs> else couldn't close it at five o'clock and, uh, or that you can always go to someone like yourself uh, at Holy Name of Jesus who has the keys to the kingdom with him at all times. I'm and there a lot. <laughs> you can always go, just seek out, if the church is locked, seek out Bill Gent. He'll be able to to, to let you in. So, yeah, we, we, you we have— You must be following me. <laughs> we have a lot of practical reasons for that, but the spirit of what you're saying is very much in keeping with, I think, the implications of, of this stop at the upper room is that it, it, our churches— uh, and, and our people need to be places of belonging and intimacy and mm-hmm. safety and, and all kinds of people, manner of people, Catholics, not Catholics, yeah. many wayfarers, many mm-hmm. pilgrims simply find comfort in going into the space mm-hmm. of, of a Catholic church. And, and that's it's sad when we decide or we must lose an element of that because of overwhelming you know, practical uh, reasons as well. Um, but that sense of belonging, intimacy, safety uh, in the New Testament, uh, the church is, is very much about one of the sort of pillars of, of the life of the early Christians is this, in the Greek, uh, koinonia. Uh, as you know, it's, I mean, it's a challenging word uh, for us uh, in English because there really is no exact sort of all-encompassing English word that really captures the spirit of that. But that's a number of... Uh, English words. Right, number of English words, none of which are really satisfactory. So you kind of almost have to sort of put them into a blender and Mm -hmm. let them all, uh, sort of like a diamond, each of them maybe has a facet of of this, but it was so central uh, to the... And of course, when the Gospels are being written, this... This aspect of, of the early Christian life, the emphasis on koinonia, remember, they've already been living this. So when they're speaking about, you know, when the evangelists are writing now many years, decades later about these events, the, the sense of, of koinonia is very much present, and this is what Jesus mm-hmm. is, because they've been living this. Mm-hmm. So when they talk about coming together in the upper room, you may or may not see that Greek word in, in, uh, in those evangelists, but certainly the spirit of that. So mm-hmm. it, it, the original meaning uh, comes from koinonos, which means different things. Uh, primarily, partner. A sharer, a koinonios was a partner, a sharer, a companion, very much uh, emphasizing close-knit and shared participation in community. This is a very important part. It's not just, oh, I feel all warm and fuzzy with these people, but it has a sense of a shared participation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get to be in this this intimate, safe belonging, but you have something to do here. Yeah. You just don't get to just show you're up. You're not and, a spectator. No, you're not a spectator. It's very much a participant in uh, community. And it is much more than friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, much more than friendship. Because for, for Christians, koinonia is divinely intimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It comes about only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a it's a holy unity. It's the Spirit who brings this about, um, and so uh, that this upper room is meant to be a place of this 
koinonia. Spirit-filled, is it any wonder that in some of the evangelists and some of the Gospels, where does the Spirit descend? It's in this very place yeah. at Pentecost. Why? Because it has already been laid out, already been, if you will, structured, mm-hmm. already been experienced as a place of koinonia, and therefore this is in the Pentecost accounts of Luke Acts. This is where the Spirit uh, descends. And when you're talking about this kind of a relationship, Father, you know, we think about how God is not a respecter of persons. And so the idea that we are brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of interesting that you're talking about that because some of our folks that went over to the shrine for the right of election a couple of Sundays ago, one of the things that they observed is that they are entering, in reality, a poor church. Because here are these people coming from Beachside and they go over and they see how those who are going to the right of election, how they happen to be dressed, simply because they don't have the resources to really dress up. And I'm thinking in terms of how we should see the church from that perspective, and maybe even the apostles had to kind of understand that also. There are people besides us, and yet we share something very, very special as Jesus calls us to this certain intimacy. Right. I mean, you, you see that showing up in uh, numerous different narratives throughout the, the Gospels as well, how many times Jesus has to challenge his own disciples who were being schooled in, in his openness and in the, you know, the embrace of all different kinds of people. Every once in a while, they're trying to give a corrective. Mm. You're not supposed to be with those people. Look at the way that person right. is dressed. Um, let them feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all these, they sort of get it, and then they, like we do, slip back into your um, uh, unbaptized humanity. <laughs> your <laughs> and, prejudices. Yes, and <laughs> our own prejudices. And we say, like, oh my gosh, look at that. Uh, and, and, I mean, the, the, what you're describing about people from your community going over to the right of election. So here's the story interesting that I'm going to go to this beautiful event where I'm entering into this intense time of purification and enlightenment uh, for uh, being new life in Christ, and I'm observing the way people are dressed. Yet the beauty of what you described, though, is somehow they or their mentors had the instincts to say, okay, let's learn something about what does that say to Mm -hmm. us? So our initial prejudices Mm -hmm. are there, but then that that became for them a wonderful experience of well, this is the church. This yeah. is this is Christ. So, so his own disciples along the way um, were often uh, corrected, uh, mildly to severely, about making judgments about uh, other sorts of people, how they spoke, how they appeared. Um, oh, don't you know who that woman is? Drying your feet with her hair and anointing mm-hmm. you with oil. So all all this kind of stuff is is happening there, and yet this sense of of partnership, companionship divine intimacy, holy unity, this koinonia that we're still trying to live out in the upper rooms of our, our Christian communities today is still still not an, not an easy thing. And the one who prepared the upper room or the people who prepared the upper room, they may have been completely unknown to the disciples. And so the fact that the disciples show up with Jesus and some guy they don't know and maybe his family or whatever prepared this beautiful space, that was a learning experience for them too. Right, in that sense of even beginning again with this certain man or the man carrying the jar of water is they had to open, and this is a topic we'll get into shortly, is the disciples, Jesus sets them up 
to enter into this very close-knit, intimate event, but they were reliant upon the hospitality of somebody else. Mm -hmm. This is not their place. Yep. Um, and so they have to rely on a stranger. Mm -hmm. and, and how many times in the ministry of Jesus did he have to keep putting up strangers mm -hmm. as people who were going to teach the disciples a thing or two? Yep. Uh, not somebody in the inner circle, but it's always mm -hmm. the stranger. So here again, they had to open themselves to to someone else's space, someone else's hospitality, um, in order to to enter into this really important moment of of communion. And that that sense of the upper room being a place of communion, the church as communion was a very uh, powerful theme amongst many others coming out of the documents of the Second Vatican Council on the church. You know, church is mystery, church is, is uh, union, church is uh, unity, church is, is a place of repentance. Church as communion was a very, there's some very beautiful passages to, uh, to read there in the Constitution on the church. And of course, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, being a crafter, participant in the Second Vatican Council during during his papacy, he often wrote about, spoke about the importance of church as communion. It was really a concept and a reality that uh, it really is a concept and a reality that lies at the heart of the church's self-understanding, mm -hmm. and it traces its way, I believe, literally back to what we're discussing today is this search for the upper room. Uh, and as, as, as the church points out and Pope Benedict Mention, and we can see that in the space here that church's communion is two-dimensional. So it's it's the vertical dimension, communion with God, people and God, but it's also the horizontal yeah. communion. It's not either one or the other. It's always both dimensions at the same time, vertical communion with God, horizontal communion with humanity. Mm. And that that model of communion is already being played out in this upper room. This is going to be a place for Jesus and the disciples to commune with the Father, but it's also an intense time of communion with each other, all those elements working together. I think as Westerners, we often look to the Middle East, if you've traveled to the Middle East or are aware of how Middle Easterners tend to be focused on hospitality, regardless of who the person is. It's kind of interesting that Christianity certainly has adopted it. Jesus obviously promoted it. And yet nowadays in the Western world, we have to constantly remind our people to be hospitable. It's kind of interesting. We can learn from all of this, Father, going back to our discussion going back to what Jesus experienced and certainly promoted, this ought to be something that as Christians becomes very natural to us. Right. It's, 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 and, and it's this particular brand of hospitality. Yeah. You know, when you speak about hospitality in terms of the church and, and Christians as a place of communion, this is not only about, well, leave the door open till seven o'clock at <laughs> night or, oh, we do really good in providing food and drink. I mean, the, these are typical things we think about hospitality. But Jesus' brand of hospitality and, and what we're trying to inherit uh, from really the whole Judeo-Christian tradition uh, is a lot more than that, and, it, and it's discomforting uh, yeah. at times. So that's why I said even you know in the search for the upper room, these people had to place themselves, their lives, into the hands of somebody else. Now, Jesus is giving the directive, you will see this man, you will find this place, but in a time of intensity where we don't even know if we're going to live to see tomorrow. 
and you're telling us to put our lives in the hands of a strangers? Again, is this a setup? Mm. Are we going to be taken to a place where, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all going to come to mm-hmm. an end? So the sense of Haas putting yourself in the hands of strangers to lead and guide you um, is a very interesting aspect. Of course, you know, when it comes to Christian hospitality, uh, is often emblazoned on the doors of many churches, Hebrews 13, 2. Yeah. You know, yeah. let mutual love continue. Mm-hmm. How does mutual love continue? It continues by do not neglect mm-hmm. You know, hospitality to strangers. Yeah, person uh, you greet on Sunday morning might be an angel. <laughs> exactly. You know, you have entertained angels without yes. knowing it. Romans twelve thirteen. You know, um, extend hospitality to strangers mm-hmm. all the way back to Genesis. Abram and uh, Sarah at Mamre, extending and it's a certain kind. So Christian hospitality, much more than a simple welcome, and then I go about my business. Um, or an offer of food or drink. It's an attitude of the heart. And the attitude of the heart that's particularly challenging that Jesus shows us is an openness to the unknown, mm. the unknown person, the unknown event, extending oneself true Christian hospitality. And here's why offering food and drink. I mean, they're, they're nice beginnings, but the real heart of it all, what Jesus is calling mm. people to in this upper room, is extending oneself beyond the familiar. Uh, Luke is the classic gospel of showing Jesus' welcoming the most unlikely mm-hmm. guests. And, and that is continuing to play itself out, I think, as we look at, you know, our own, am I, am I a temple of, uh, a, am I a place of communion? Mm-hmm. Not only is my church a place of communion, but am I, uh, the people that, my own intimate group of people, are we a place of, of communion? And remember, that's really the definition of pilgrim in a sense to begin Again. with. We're sort of all wayfarers. All pilgrims are strangers. Mm-hmm. And this is what we talked about in the very first program, difference between tourists and strangers. Tourists want everything to look like it does at home. Mm-hmm. Pilgrims recognize I'm entering into and reliant upon mm-hmm. the hospitality of others. I'm a stranger here. Uh, we're all guests mm-hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a sense. So as you've already alluded to in our lives, many, many hurdles to hospitality, fear, uh, suspicion of the unfamiliar, mm-hmm. uh, our own self-centeredness at times, uh, threat of change. I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to eat something different. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to listen to something different. I'm going to have to hear a language that's different than mm-hmm. mine. Um, a hurdle to hospitality is we're going to question ourselves when we're in an unfamiliar environment and also Others are going to question us, mm-hmm. and we sometimes don't like that either. You know, I have to begin rethinking, wow, people can actually be happy living in a way that's different than I live. Yeah. Or people, when I'm in an unfamiliar environment, they may come up and challenge me and say, so you're used to doing things this way, so what do you think about our mm-hmm. way? Do you think our way is better than yours? Or, or so, so many, many hurdles to this sense of hospitality, but uh, it is so, so central uh, it, yes, it begins with at least acknowledging people. Um, it begins with kindness and, and compassion. I think I've, I've shared a couple of times before, perhaps in this setting, but I know I've done it in other settings too, is when I was sort of on the circuit going around doing parish missions and, and retreats. And, you know, I would show up on a Saturday 
sometimes the pastor was there. Sometimes they use that as the opportunity to go on a vacation because there was extra help. So, you know, be that as it may, I was there for the mission. So I come into some strange parish I've never been to. I walk into the lobby. People are milling around before the Saturday afternoon mass, uh, ministers of hospitality, so forth and so on. I've got vestment bag in hand, all kinds of things, dressed as a priest, and I'm just trying to find my way to the sacristy, and nobody is even acknowledging that I am there, uh, greeting me, anything. Mm. And then every once in a while, you kind of get close to somebody, and, and they would look at me, not say anything, sort of look at me and then all danger stranger danger and then all of a sudden they would catch this big giant poster with my face on it (laughs) father ben barenti giving the advent mission and they'd look at the poster and look at me and like oh oh you're you're that guy oh okay oh that's you and then they still turn around and go about their business so i would just kind of start wandering around it's like you know i'm not looking for a meal or a snack i just want to find my way to the sacristy that's all i want to do so we have many, many uh, challenges within our I, churches. I think, too, Father, especially today with the whole idea, I said stranger danger, but it's the whole idea that people are so suspicious of anyone that walks in the church that we're not familiar with. We, we immediately go to the idea, could this be a rogue gunman who's come mm-hmm. in our church to do damage, you know? Right. And so we have the kind of the opposite, and and. and The world that we live in has put us, obviously, with that kind of mindset, when in reality, we really have to challenge that and say we need to be open. Right. I mean, certainly we have to be conscious of possible danger, but at the same time, not throw out this whole idea of the importance of hospitality. Yes, and what Jesus continues to show us is this business about pushing beyond our own even legitimate fears. Yes, these are legitimate fears and concerns, but somehow we've got to still uh, push beyond them. You know, that wonderful image that Francis gives us um, that I think is very reminiscent of this upper room, this place of communion, the church is the field hospital. Mm. This is where... Mm. Mm. All kinds of people are coming. And especially we've seen, you know, as our communities are trying to reach out to young people and young adults today, what is the one thing that we have got to be a place of openness and attentiveness? Mm. And we've got to create new ways of belonging, new places of belonging, especially for young people and young adults. Otherwise, the the drain is going to continue to happen. Yeah. At some point, our churches will be empty if we're not careful. Father, you have a quote here, hospitality is not a place to change people, but where change takes place. I think that's interesting because I think when we offer hospitality to people that enter our parish churches, we're kind of looking for a way to do something to change them. In other words, you know, we've got to let them know they're not properly dressed. We've got to let them know that, you know, you didn't make the sign of the cross properly. You're really not singing loud enough. Help us with how the place uh, is what allows us or allows them individually to experience change. Right. I mean, again, that's often we <clears throat> we think of hospitality as about well, come someone comes in and sort of plays by our rules, um, and we we do what we want. But but real hospitality is knowing that um, the stranger, however that is defined, um, the Christian method of welcoming the stranger is to take them in and to know that they are also bearing gifts for us, mm. and 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 we can only hospitality begins, I believe, and I think many others believe 
the beginning of true Christian hospitality is listening. It's not speaking. It's not telling people what to do. It's really listening. And then you move on from that. And I think that's how Mm. hospitality is not about changing people to conform to certain kinds Mm. of practices. It's allowing the the space in which they eventually do want to do this sort of thing. Mm. So it's one thing to, you're not dressed properly. Oh, you made the sign of the cross the wrong way. This is the way you make it. Let them stumble over that. Because once they feel they're in a, place in a church in a in a, in a mass mm. where boy I really felt welcome here and nobody was pointing I was very self-conscious of not knowing what to do but no one was you know I think now I want to learn more about what they're doing or I might ask somebody next week you know I'm probably like not doing this right mm-hmm. uh, and, and those are little minor things but that whole sense that we don't invite people in to make them become exactly like us we invite them to come in and to allow them the freedom, the safety, the sense of belonging, a sense of intimacy that they're cared about. And then once you have that kind of a safe place, mm-hmm. all manner of change can happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But but we sort of want to get all the chairs organized in the right, right. way first, yeah. as opposed to just simply welcoming and listening to people. And that's what's been hard, I mean, for many people, but especially as the church grapples with young people and young adults, is we want to tell them this is what you do. This is how you become uh, an active member of the church, and we're not listening to their to who they are in their stories. Well, the church is a field hospital, Father. I dare say no emergency room is going to turn someone away because they're not properly dressed, or, you know, just for one example. And even in that kind of a case, literally in that metaphor is the triage begins. So what is happening to you? What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Mm. The medical people don't simply make a determination right. about what's wrong with I you. I think you have this. They want to hear from <laughs> you. So, you know, in this field hospital, the church, we mm. need to hear from people as well. The analogy is beautiful. It really is. Father, I know that uh, next week we'll continue our Lenten pilgrimage. And next week, what are we going to be looking at on our journey? Next week we are, so we have searched for the upper room, but now we are going to make a stop at this table of the Last Supper. Uh, And to recognize ourselves, as I will share next week, we are marked for life. This Paschal meal as it was for the ancient Israelites, this new covenant meal is a meal of liberation for us. And so we're going to spend time around that table and see what the Lord has in store for us. That's our stop next week. Well, as we conclude today, Father, would you lead us with the pilgrim prayer that we began with? And we gather, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. God of the journey, create in each of us the heart of a pilgrim and give us the courage to set off on our Lenten pilgrimage. You call us, Lord, to leave familiar things and our comfort zones. Grant that this time spent on pilgrimage may help us to see ourselves as we really are and may we strive to become the people you would have us be. God the Father who created us, guide our footsteps. God the Son who redeemed us, give us a share in your passion. God of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, lead us on this Lenten journey. And may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with us, be with you wherever you may go. Amen. Well, thank you, Father Ben Berenti, pastor of Immaculate Conception Parish in Melbourne Beach, has been leading us on this beautiful Lenten pilgrimage. Please uh, choose to join us next Tuesday as we'll continue our journey. You are listening to Treasures of Faith on Divine Mercy Radio, Melbourne, Vero Beach.